Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Mark Dunley. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a double piece segment. I talked to Lynn Jackson about a recent trip to Kurdistan to visit Yassin Aref, who spent 15 years in prison, prison due to an FBI sting targeting Muslims. Later on, we hear from Elisha Bacon about her former internship with the Media Sanctuary. Uh, then Sina speaks with Fehu Farmstand, a new workers' co-op providing locally grown and foraged plants used by witches and anyone who uses the power of plants to improve lives. And we finish with another Dear World segment from Lavender. But first, headlines. The Times Union reports that the resident assistants who work in the dorms at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute are unionizing. In a petition drive, 76% of the RAs signed, which is enough to allow them allow the union to form without an election if RPI officials agree. If not, they plan to hold an election this spring. Job dissatisfaction has been brewing for years. The resident assistants are students who live in the dorms for free in exchange for supervising up to 80 students who live in their dorms. They are also paid about $60 a month, but their working conditions vary greatly and they had no control over it. Following the devastating earthquake this week in Turkey and Syria, members of Albany's Turkish community will launch a clothing drive Wednesday in Manans to help victims. The drive begins at noon at 100 Broadway in Manans and will continue daily from 1 to 5 p.m. for the next two weeks. Items needed include new and gently used blankets, sleeping bags, diapers, hygiene products, baby clothes, coats, boots, sweaters, gloves, scarves, socks, and pants. Republican Rensselaer County Legislator Tom, Tom Grant recently announced his intention to run for East Greenbush Town Supervisor. He said he would use his 40 years of experience in government to control financial matters. He also wants to upgrade Columbia Turnpike. Jack Conway, the present town supervisor, announced that he was leaving the Democratic Party as it is ineffective, reactionary, and bereft of a single progressive idea. He has not yet said if he will run for re-election. The Gazette reports that the city of Schenectady's $5.5 million project to construct a modern pool in Central Park has doubled in cost due to cost overruns and an expanded scope of work on the project. A splash pool for young children was the main addition. After the Schenectady, City Council ended up deadlocked in January on a measure to support a proposed state law that could that would seal criminal conviction records of formerly incarcerated individuals. The council will vote on the matter a second time on February 13th. City Councilman John Mutuverin was absent from the January meeting, but he says he will vote for the resolution. Hundreds of New York public schools are being shortchanged by tax breaks that benefit private businesses, according to a new report from Good Jobs First. 
at least $1.8 billion of local property taxes that would have funded school districts instead went to industrial development agencies for tax breaks, supposedly to create local jobs that often fail to materialize. The report recommends eliminating IDAs. That's it for the headlines. And we start today's show with the double segment. A delegation of Capital District peace activists recently traveled to Kurdistan to visit Yassin Aref, a local imam who spent 15 years in federal prison due to the FBI's entrapment on him and the local pizza store owner. Lynn Jackson of the Coalition of Civil Freedoms discusses the trip with Mark. For our Peace Bucket, we're joined by uh, Lynn Jackson, um, who, among other groups, is with the Coalition for Civil Freedoms. And and recently, half a dozen people from the Capital District took a, a visit to see Yassin Aref uh, in uh, Iraqi uh, Kurdistan. Aref, along with Mohammed Hussain, was part of the infamous, uh, what you call it, the Pizza Gate sting by the uh, FBI. Um, back in August 2004, uh, Yassin Aref was a well-respected, well-known imam. It ended up, unfortunately, um, being sentenced to 15 years in, in federal prison and then uh, deported. So, so Lynn, you know, why did you go to, to Kurdistan? And what exactly is, is Kurdistan? It's sort of part of Iraq in the north, but part of a more autonomous region. Um, yeah, so uh, Kurdistan is northern Iraq, um, which is mostly occupied by Kurds. The Kurds are probably the largest ethnic group that do not have their own country. And there are Kurds who live in um, Iraq, they live in Syria, Turkey, um, and Iran. Uh, but this part of uh, northern Iraq is called Kurdistan. And though even though it's part of Iraq, it still has its own government. It's called an autonomous region. When we went, we got we were able to get visas just to visit Kurdistan, and we didn't have to deal with Iraqi visas. And a lot of people don't realize that uh, where Kurdistan is, but it's northern Iraq. I understand it's a very uh, fairly mountainous uh, region, but now you were very uh, active uh, with the uh, Yassin Aref and, and Hossein uh, trial. Um, and some people may have been following, of course, that the so-called informant who, you know, had been caught doing uh, his own illegal activities uh, was also the owner of the uh, Skahari limousine uh, company that's still being. But why did you go see Yassin in uh, Kurdistan after all these years? Well, Yassin was in prison for 15 years in, um, in the United States. He spent some of his time in the infamous communication management units. And as an activist, I did a lot of what I could to help uh, support him and his family uh, here in Albany. The reason I went to visit is that I had never seen Yassin free. I was only able, all those years, 15 years of him being in prison, I was only able to visit him once when he was in um, ICE detention at the very end of his um when after his sentence was finished before they released him. Uh, and so I wanted to see Yassin free. I wanted to see Yassin in his own country. And, and speaking about being in his own country, uh, 
you know, what was the reaction of his, his neighbors in the community? You know, here's a gentleman, American sent him to 15 years in prison, allegedly for helping to be money laundering and a, you know, trumped up uh, terrorist operation. Is he a respected member of his community? Oh my goodness, yes. So seeing Yassin in Kurdistan was a really incredible experience. You know, he's part of, he can trace his lineage back. His grandfather was a famous imam. His family lived in a small village called Hashazini. And he's part of a larger group. We met many, many relatives of Yassin. We met his brothers. We met his cousins. We met um, his nieces, his nephews, all kinds of people. And it's this, it, it's a, it's a very different kind of way in Kurdistan, that family is very important. And to see Yassin in his family, with his family, was a really powerful statement. And his family, so in some of the conversations we had, certain family members would ask us, well, like, was this a mistake? The government make a mistake? You know, like what, you know, this, why did America, you know, target Yassin? And of course, those questions were a little difficult to answer because clearly the FBI targeted Yassin. And nobody that we met could believe that Yassin had done anything wrong. They knew him. They'd known him since he was a child and they uh, they known him all his life. And they couldn't imagine that he did anything wrong. And it was really wonderful to see. And I think also that people were, in some ways, it was embarrassing that people were so appreciative that um, the six of us who'd been supporters of Yassin here in Albany went, traveled all the way to Kurdistan to go visit him. Yeah, and I always remember, you know, in sort of his first court appearance, you know, the FBI said, oh, we found his name in a book of somebody who they were, tra uh, you know, tracking. And he was listed as commandant, you know, head of militia. And somebody else pointed out, well, actually, that word in our language means brother and it's a you know sort of a signal of respect but who who else went on the uh, trip with you and, and who were some of the people you met during the trip um so we went with um Steve Downs one of Yassine's attorneys Kathy Manley another one of Yassine's attorneys Kathy Manley's daughter Diana uh, Manley and then the journalist Carl Strock who wrote extensively about Yassine for the Daily Gazette and his wife Pearl we met a lot of people. We met many, many members of Yassin's family, and we met some of his friends. One of his friends is a general. We met the general. We also met uh, the chief of a one of the tribes in Chamchamal, which Chamchamal is the city Yassin lives in now. And we met a very prominent leader for one of the tribes there. Um, and then we were quite pleased to meet the governor of Sulaymania, which is uh, a, the big city that we stayed in when we were in Kurdistan. Sulaymaniyah has about 750,000 people. We were just pleased to be able to meet the governor. It was really an incredible experience. And what did you talk to the uh, governor about? And, and what were some of the, you know, the broader political discussions about, like, you know, how do they, you know, relate to America and, you know, how we relate to the Middle East? Um, so one of the things the governor said that really struck me was that he talked about Kurdistan as being an island. And instead of being surrounded by water, they're surrounded by fire. 
because all around Kurdistan, there is a lot of unrest. And that was really interesting to me. You have to remember that the Kurds really like the Americans. The Kurds love the Americans. And when Americans just lump everybody in the Middle East together, that's not right. There's many different people and politics and all this kind of stuff in the Middle East, just like there is here in the U.S., and that people are different and the Kurds really like America. The governor also said to us that he hoped that America looked at Kurdistan as being a partner with America and um, as equals, which I thought was very significant. The other thing the governor was concerned about is climate change. And he talked about planting trees. I wish we'd had more time to talk about the environment, but, um, but we were not able to, but he clearly cares deeply about the environment. With all of this, the one thing that really struck me about going to Kurdistan, understanding the Kurds, because unfortunately the Kurds have suffered many genocides, like horrific genocides. There's Halabja, there's Anfal, and these happened in 1988. They're, they're horrific. And we went to museums that describe these incidents. When you understand what the Kurds have been through and how they've been persecuted, because the governor also said that the Kurds are the only people have never occupied another land. They have never been occupiers. They've, you know, they have their own land. That's it. They're, they've never been occupiers. And when you look at the history of the Kurds, about the genocides, about the struggles that the Kurds have today, and then you look at the FBI's supposed plot that Yassine was supposed to be involved with, which involved like some group in India, it makes no sense at all. And I came back with this sense that, you know, that the FBI didn't understand the Kurds, had no idea who Kurds were. And, and the fact that they went after Yassine Araf, this gentle, wonderful man who had, you know, a family is just appalling to me. And I came back angrier about what the FBI did to Yassine Araf than, I, than when I went to Kurdistan, which I didn't really think was possible because I was pretty angry when I went. So, so let me just jump in here and say we've been talking with uh, Lynn Jackson, Coalition for Civil Freedoms, about her visit to Yassine Araf in Iraqi Kurdistan. And this is Mark Dunley for the uh, Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So what what is uh, Yassine's life now that he's back in Kurdistan? So Yassin lives with his his wife. It was wonderful to see his wife again. His children are all now American citizens and they travel, they go back to visit Yassin, but his children pretty much live here. So here he is, a man who lost 15 years of his life to prison for nothing, yet he seems pretty happy. He lives in a nice house in Chamchama with his wife. Um, he has a job. And he's still writing books. He's written quite a number of books. One of them is, and he's working with a, a group called, um, I think I got the name right, Agora Voice, where they have um, made Son of Mountains, the book that Yassine wrote uh, after his conviction. Uh, they've made Son of Mountains into an audio book. And Yassin wrote a two-volume book in Kurdish about his experience in the U.S. prison system. And, of course, all of us in Albany would very much like to read the book. Unfortunately, it's in Kurdish. So we're hoping that Agora Voice, maybe with the help of others, 
can have this book translated so that we can we can read it because I think it's going to be a very powerful a very powerful book. Yassine often goes uh, walking in the mountains. He goes hiking, and he produces. Uh, he has a Facebook page. He produces many videos on Facebook. And overall, despite his horrific experience in the U.S. prison system, because he never should have been there, he seems pretty pretty happy. It was absolutely wonderful to see him. It, I cannot express the hospitality we received from Yassine and his family was overwhelming. It was beyond anything I have ever experienced in my life to be um, so welcomed and taken care of. Uh, it was it was just wonderful. Uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I met so many wonderful people. Uh, I'm really into waterfalls. And so I saw you visit uh, a waterfall there, but uh, it seemed like not quite as robust as the waterfalls that we see here in, uh, say, northeastern uh, United States. Yes, the waterfall visit was was uh, wonderful. It was beautiful. My understanding is the water comes from really far away through, they don't really know exactly why it comes out of the mountain. But unlike waterfalls here where there's not, you know, you look at the waterfall, but there's not a lot of, uh, you know, buildings or construction near waterfalls here. But in Kurdistan, they're so unusual that the uh, entire walkway, there was, it was a very nice walkway to, to walk up to the waterfall was lined with shops. It was very interesting to me because it was the winter time. There was no one there but us. So there was, we had lots of room and everything. But my understanding is that in the summertime, it's pretty packed with people. The mountains, unfortunately, there has been significant climate change in Kurdistan. And we went to the top of one mountain, uh, Dukan, uh, in Dukan, Kurdistan. There was no snow, there was virtually no snow at all. And Yassine said that back in the day, you wouldn't be able to drive up to the mountain because there'd be four feet of snow on the mountain. And this is really quite alarming that there is much less snow in uh, Kurdistan than there used to be. Because it was the wintertime, things were sort of brown, like California, you know, kind of uh, uh, brownish. Uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of green. My understanding that in the springtime, it's uh, everything is green for a couple months. And then, and then you have the heat of the summer, but it doesn't quite look like here in the Northeast where, you know, if it weren't for the temperature, we basically live in a rainforest. I mean, you just, you, if you don't do anything with a piece of land, things grow. But in Kurdistan, it was much more barren of vegetation, but it was beautiful. The mountains were absolutely spectacular, just, just beautiful. And the, the views were amazing. So, so sort of the ending question, and you can take it where you want, uh, but you mentioned, um, you know, that your, I guess, anger about the treatment of uh, Yassin and uh, Mohammed Hussein has increased. You know, what, what, what type of lesson or inspiration, you know, do you take back from this trip? Where do you go from here? Well, I think that the thing that I really would like to see happen is that more that more people become aware of Yassine's case because it was so grossly unfair. We shouldn't be doing this. One way people can learn more about it is there's a movie that was just made about Yassine, which also includes some, um, some scenes from Kurdistan because the movie maker went to interview Yassine in Kurdistan. And that's called Witness. 
and that's available, I think, on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's an excellent movie. Um, the other thing that I hope happens is that more people will listen to the audiobook on Agora Voice, uh, Son of Mountains, or people will read Yassine's book, because I think it's really important to understand that, um, you know, what the government did, because the more I was in Kurdistan and I learned about, you know, the politics and about the history and about the culture, I realized that the FBI, when they did this sting operation on this, on Yassin, they had no idea about Kurdish culture or Kurdish history at all. They had, the FBI had no idea. And they concocted this crazy plot about some Pakistani ambassador or something. It was crazy plot. And it just, it just really bothers me. You know, I'd also like you know, I also came back inspired to maybe learn a little Kurdish because um, most of the people I met, unfortunately, uh, I can't speak any Kurdish and they didn't know much English, though their English was usually better than, certainly better than anything I could say in Kurdish. And to really understand more about the people. And the other thing is that we need to become aware of the genocides that happen against the Kurds, because a lot of people don't know about these. So the, the genocide in Halabja was when uh, Saddam's army uh, dropped gas on the city of Halabja and 5,000 people died. It was in one day, it was a horrific attack. And then a month or so later, uh, Saddam started with a systematic, an eight part systematic extermination of all of the villages in Kurdistan, all of the villages. And basically, Saddam killed all the villagers and destroyed all the villages. And that killed about 182,000 Kurds. And all of these things happened in 1988 within my lifetime. And this is not a long time ago. We saw um, several museums devoted to these various genocides. Um, but the world just doesn't know about this. And the we need to understand that these kinds of things happened and we need to take, you know, steps so this never happens again. It was very, that part of seeing the museums and learning about the genocides was very sobering to me because it's, a, it's something that we as Americans really just don't know much about. And it's horrific what Saddam Hussein did to the Kurds is unforgivable. And it was, it was just horrific. And, and so, Lynn, you, you you mentioned the movie Witness, but if people want more information, um, Coalition for Civil Freedoms, any any suggestions, websites? Um, Witness, uh, I don't have the uh, website off the top of my head. There is a trailer on the internet um, uh, for Witness. And then um, Agora, Agora Vision is, uh, they have... Their websites in English also. If you look up Agora Vision, uh, you can find out. Uh, you can see. You, you can buy Yasin's book and uh, audio format, which I would highly recommend. Well, thank you very much, uh, Lynn Jackson, Coalition for Civil Freedoms, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So, if you want more information about Witness, you can look at Witness doc.com gives her documentary and uh, the media sanctuary did do a screening and had a q a with the uh 
person who put together the documentary. So if you go on to um, mediacentury.org and type in witness, um, you know, a lot of that information will come up. And I, I'll just mention, I had to be um, reading a book right now, different country, but unfortunately the same sort of war zone um, about the American experience from a reporter's viewpoint with people in Af Af Afghanistan and, and just the level of um, despair and poor living conditions that result from America's not comprehending what in fact the culture is in these uh, countries. And of course, with all places, most people just want to take care of their families. They're not interested in holy wars and fighting the United States. But it is really sad to hear, you know, what the FBI did to uh, Iraq, particularly with the Kurdish being, uh, in, in fact, really, really uh, strong supporters of the United States. Just another blown opportunity. But for those just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunley. And I'm Sina Bazilahiki. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany. We're also streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support the program by telling a friend, co-worker, a neighbor, relative. Um, find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. This week we have another intern spotlight from the Sanctuary for Independent Media. And this week, Elisha Bacon spoke with Lavender about what that experience was like. Hi, I'm Lavender, and I'm here with Elisha Bacon, former intern at the Sanctuary for Independent Media. And she's here to tell me about her experience and what she's up to now. Welcome, and thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, very, very uh, grateful to, you know, I've been a part of the Sanctuary community for many years and started as an intern um, and happy to be doing this interview with you. Awesome. So when and how did you first hear about the sanctuary? So um, my story for coming to the sanctuary is actually pretty amazing. I think I had just moved to Schenectady. I'm originally from Scottsdale, Arizona, and I was, you know, just turned 21 and was ready to just get out of my childhood hometown and start fresh. And I got talked into moving to Schenectady. And so I moved in February, 2010. Um, and it was very like rough and tumble. I came out with just a couple bags of luggage. I had 60 bucks. Um, I was kind of fighting with my mom at the time, but she bought me a one-way ticket. That's how you know she's mad. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I bounced around for a long time, you know, couch surfing and um until I could rent an apartment and then you know did roommates for a while and lived with my ex-boyfriend um and it was a very you know dark time for me I was going through what I call the quarter life crisis really worried about my future 
um, and what what options that I would be able to um, have and get into. And my journeys uh, led me to Proctor's. Um, and I used to wait at Proctor's in between buses. And my journey from to and from work at the time, living in either Mount Pleasant or Bellevue, was very long. So I would walk a quite great distance. I would take the bus for hours working in Latham um, or wherever my temp agency at the time sent me. And so Proctor's was like a refuge and it was downtime between buses. And if Proctor's wasn't open, that meant I had to stand out in the cold and I still didn't have a lot of winter accessories. So I was, you know, really, really freezing uh, and still adjusting to living in the Northeast. So I would always look at, and I still do this, I looked at all the, the flyers because I, you know, didn't have a lot of money, but I found that, you know, there were events going on that were free. Um, and at times that was, you know, how I was going to get a meal was going to a free event. And one of the flyers that I picked up that just really sparked my heart and my mind was the sanctuary for independent media. I actually still have the brochure that I picked up. Um, it was yellow and it just talked about, you know, independent media. And at the time I was trying to be a freelance writer and was blogging and was hoping to do content writing and even filmmaking as I started my, my um, academic career in that. And this was an opportunity to continue to work on my skills and to be in a creative community um, and be working for social good, which I found very fulfilling. Um, the work I was doing was a lot of customer service. Um, and it was a jobs that I didn't have a lot of agency in being able to help people. So I basically could tell people, this is like what your benefits have. Um, but there were situations where people needed medication because they were they were dying and that wasn't covered. And I didn't have the ability to help them really outside of that. It wasn't in my um, purview to be able to make any decisions that were going to cover that medication. So I really um, love the atmosphere. When my first trip down, I took a multiple buses to Troy. It was, it was scary because I was still very new. Um, and I look back on this time and I'm grateful for it because now I know the capital region, honestly, better than a lot of people that live here. I know, um, the ins and outs, the, the cut, the cuts, the shortcuts, the back roads. Um, and it's because so many years I spent walking and taking the bus and, um, and trying new things and going to new places and being an adventurer. And that was the part that I loved about my life at the time was adventuring. And so going to the sanctuary was an adventure. And I met Branda um, and they were really welcoming to me, even though I was this person, you know, still people at the time, and this was probably about 2013, they always knew um, that I was not from here. So it was just instant like, oh, where are you from? And I still like dressed not like I was from here and maybe even had a bit of an accent, but they let me in and it was very quickly that I was, you know, working cameras and 
doing filming and editing and hosting bands, famous bands that came from all over the world, Thomas Manfumbo and the Blacks Unlimited. And so the sanctuary really opened up this world to me that I feel like a similar organization maybe that exists in New York City, you might not get that entry-level experience right off the bat where you're just thrown into the mix. People are there to help you, to train you if they want you to do something. And you're really able to be a part of that community very quickly. Um, it's probably been one of the most loving, welcoming spaces that I've come to in my time in New York. And so I still try to stay involved. Um, now I work as a, an organizer for community, for climate justice. And that work still allows me to organize and still do things with the sanctuary. And so I'm just happy to be part of the community and I hope that it's going to stay the same, at least in the sense that like, you know, no matter how big it grows, that it'll always be a place that's welcoming to newcomers. Yeah, that's great. And you basically answered a lot of the questions I had in that, in that summary you gave, but could you talk more about what your internship focused on? And um, yeah, what was your involvement at the sanctuary? Yeah, so I think the first day that I went, I think a lot of the work I was doing was Uptown Summer, and so I was just kind of getting acquainted um, with the people, but I think, you know, I would write blogs and kind of talk about the work we were doing at the Sanctuary. I think you can still even find my old blogs on their website, and then, you know, there's like so much work to be done that if you want to get involved and you calm down, like, they will put either a camera in your hand or they'll have you, you know, help out in some way. It's not always glamorous. So I think that first day it ended with us picking up trash on the grounds. And even though I was picking up garbage, it still felt really satisfying because I felt like I was beautifying that space and making a, a real impact, even though I was doing something that seems small in some ways so yeah but, but that's the, important too yes but the breadth of what I did you know part of my favorite part was working on camera and filming their live shows and so they have you know a lot of their events when they have them in the indoor stage you'll have you know four to five person camera crew and then you have someone directing on on the first level a lot of times it was Branda and it moves so quickly and it's just so exciting. There's nothing like it. You have a headset on and there's someone in your ear, you know, telling you move the camera left, move the camera right, move it up, go in, go out. And it moves very quickly. Um, Brandon say, you know, camera two is hot. You know, you have to have your shot perfect. And it was just so fun and exciting. I loved it. So how is the how did the internship impact you going forward? Did it open up any opportunities for you? Um, and what skills did you take away from it? Yeah, I say that the internship really opened up a lot of doors for me because, you know, getting involved and getting to know the people there. Um, the people are come from all different backgrounds and the sanctuary. Um, though it's a small nonprofit, it also, you know, is a name that people know. And so 
you know, Brando would ask like, what are your interests? Because they want to support you. It's not just about, you know, making things happen for the sanctuary, but also moving us to evolve into our better selves. And so, you know, I got involved with what was the alt, um, which kind of founded after the Metroland fell apart, like as a community newspaper. Um, it kind of got me into some reporting. It got me more connected to other people that do radio. So I was involved with um, the Grand Street Community Arts Radio Station. I think the connections I made at the sanctuary were some of the most transformational aspects. But I think also being able to continue my camera skills and I did still photography and being able to put that on my resume, because you also have to remember that this time, the years that I was an intern at the sanctuary, outside of that, my life was very stressful. And I was stuck in these like low wage jobs that just saw me as a cog in the machine. You know, if you are working or producing the way that they expect, they can just get rid of you and hire some other cog. So you know, everything else wasn't really adding a lot of value. And I was struggling to make ends meet. And the sanctuary not only welcomed me and gave me an opportunity to meet people that helped get me to the next stage, you know, as far as um, people that would give me references, Brandis gave me a reference before. But also I was able to justify this, this time on my resume that I might be working six months at this place and maybe seven months at that place. I could still say, but in that time that I was, you know, doing temporary jobs, I was also working on my skill set at the sanctuary. And so that time showed like continuity. And so that just helped me continue to be able to market myself and be a competitive applicant. That's great. That's awesome. Really, really great story that you have and hopefully inspires others to, you know, to be hopeful and, and maybe check out the sanctuary if they need a home. The sanctuary has always been my home away from home. But thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk about your experience and, and talk with me today. You're welcome. I just want to say one more thing for anyone that's listening. I highly recommend that you get involved at the sanctuary or if you don't have time to volunteer, like come out and see a show because this establishment, this organization, like there's no other organization that provides the opportunities for arts and culture that the sanctuary does. We're talking about world-renowned musicians that maybe we don't know in America, but that are famous and successful in the scope of the whole world. So you get, you know, Amy Goodman, we've had Chris Hedges, famous reporters. And, you know, if people don't frequent this place, it puts it at risk of not being able to exist. And they do such a service for the North Troy community, that would be very devastating. So I am grateful that you reached out to me and I encourage everyone to get involved if you can. Absolutely, they're definitely one of a kind. So I do a lot of work with uh, Elisha these days in her role as a climate activist with Mothers um, Out Front. Um, but it was really interesting to hear about her experience as an internship. And believe it or not, internships are still available at the uh, media uh, sanctuary. Maybe in just a second, I'm going to ask Sina to tell us how to sign up um, to become an intern. And of course, here on the radio station, you hear a lot about what we're doing on the radio 
but we also have the Nature Lab, and we have the performance, as uh, Elisha was talking about, and College City Farms. But, but seeing if people want to become an intern, how quickly can they do that besides just going to mediasanctuary.org? Reaching out, thank you, Mark. Reaching out to any of us, info at mediasanctuary.org is the email that we, uh, that is a great email. You can also email me directly, sina, S-I-N-A, at mediasanctuary.org. There are lots of ways to get in contact also coming by. We are really opening up the space, and there's so many different... What's the great thing about internships is we really tailor it to make sure that both all parties benefit from a really productive project. Um, and let us know your idea, and we'll work around that. I'm just going to echo uh, Elisha's... It's a great way to meet new people, very multicultural, multi-age you know, and stuff like that. So what's up next, Asina? Next up, we have Fehu Farm Stand, which is a women and non-binary owned cooperative providing magical plants, educational materials, and classes for witches and spiritual individuals. And I heard that they're offering a candle making workshop, so I reached out. Hi, my name is Kiani Conley-Wilson. I'm the president of Fehu Farm Stand. And I'm Laura Welch. I am the secretary and bookkeeper. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So Fehu Farm Stand, can you tell us a little bit about the origin stories and how long it's been going? Fehu Farm Stand, it kind of originated through Laura and I's like passion for community organizing. Like through organizing, we were able to understand the inequities of value of labor, particularly those of women and women of color. So we wanted to lead by an example by creating a stable and sustainable business that puts the workers' needs at the forefront. So that's why our cooperative is led majority by women and non-binary members um, to create wealth for those whose labor is often underpaid or exploited. Uh, we started in October of 2022 was when we filed the paperwork to become a business. Laura, do you want to talk about the meaning of Fehu for folks that don't know what that means? Sure. Um, it is a ancient Norse rune um, from the Eldar Firthark alphabet, um, which can be used just as an alphabet to communicate, but it's also used as a divination system. So basically, it's just like our alphabet, except there's 24 symbols, and each symbol has a sound and an associated meaning, and Fehu is the first letter of the alphabet, and the representation that that rune evokes is for prosperity, but not just individual prosperity. It's a communal prosperity. Um, and there's an associated poem that sort of goes along with the meaning of Fehu that warns us that like wealth is a source of discord amongst kin and that it has to be shared equally or you end up with a, a sort of chaotic world. Um, so we can sort of see the truth of that, you know, just like where we're at in our society um, and we're sort of trying to show that prosperity doesn't have to be hoarded um, and sort of in the spirit of Fehu to try to evoke that prosperity for the workers and for our community. I hear the the critique of, of certain farming systems, but I also hear that there are other examples that you might be mimicking your practice off of. Can you talk about some of the inspirations and where you're looking to guide these alternative methods and structures that you have on Fehu? Yeah, um, that's a hard one. <laughs> or do you have any like ideas? Um, I don't know if there is a specific model that we're following, um, more just sort of like an ethos of sustainability. Um, and there's a lot of small scale local farms here that practice those ways. 
but really we're just sort of trying to see, you know, what we can make without having to um, exploit the land, what we can get just by foraging and growing things on our own without having to use big machinery with petroleum and all these other things. Um, so in some ways we're sort of like just looking to other sustainable farmers being sort of a witchcraft business is interesting too, because we're growing these herbs specifically to be used for magical purposes, um, as well as just, you know, for tea drinking, if you just like tea and stuff, but there's like all these other sort of, um, educational things that we want to share with people, like how you use herbs in ways that maybe we haven't thought of, you know, like rosemary isn't just a seasoning. It's also an ancient incense and things like that. So, um, yeah, I don't really know if there's like a, an example that specifically we're looking towards. We're kind of just trying to figure out some new things. I think The idea of witchcraft is definitely stigmatized. It has been around for such a long time. So what would you like listeners to know and understand about the term witchcraft and how Fehu is incorporating it on the on the stand? Um, so witchcraft is definitely stigmatized um, and misunderstood. Um, I'd say like there's many, many different traditions of witchcraft in mine. I kind of draw from like a European background, um, like Celtic magic and um, Norse magic and just kind of like that's where my ancestors are from. So I sort of felt connected to that. But there's many, many different traditions. But the one thing that kind of like unites all of them together is this respect for the earth and understanding that nature is a living being and that we are a part of this living being and that we're not separate from it. So if you have that understanding of nature and the earth, you can't exploit it. You can't exploit animals. You can't exploit the land. You can't just like burn things down for the most profit possible. You have to do things with respect and understanding that um, there's this concept in witchcraft called the law of three, which is anything you put out into the world will be re returned to you threefold. So if you put good things out into the world, you'll get good things back. And it's true of negative things as well. So obviously like witchcraft is in opposition, that sort of worldview of, of nature being alive is in opposition to a lot of economic practices. And if you look back like to the 1500s during burning times, which is when witches were being met, uh, persecuted in Europe and elsewhere on a massive scale, you can see that that's the same time as the enclosure of the commons, the same time as our like complete radical transformation of relationship to the earth and the relationship of like how an economy should produce goods. Um, so at this time, you see all of these myths about witchcraft being perpetuated that like witches kill babies, witches curse people and cause, um, you know, horrible weather disasters to happen and like and, and all these sorts of bad things like devil worship. But a lot of those negative stereotypes are based on this this need in society at the time to get rid of sort of an indigenous way of life that's more connected to the earth. Um, and in Europe, it, you know, like that sort of happened there, but it happened all over the world as well. Um, so you sort of see like witchcraft is a connection with the living universe and our understanding that we're sort of like cells in this body, you know, that is everything and that we're all connected. And we sort of find ourselves in solidarity with like other indigenous groups for that reason. So I think like the biggest thing I would like people to understand about witchcraft is that it's really about understanding 
humanity's connection to the natural world and our place in it. And that every single thing you do, um, even in your life or if you're casting a spell or whatever, it has an effect. And if we understand those connections, whether it's like energetically and magically or even just you know, the way that we farm or the way that we treat each other in the workplace and stuff, we have power to, to affect all of those things. And that power can be very threatening <laughs> to the people who don't want us to have it, right? So destigmatizing witchcraft to me is about showing people like that we have power and that we have connection and that losing that connection to the natural world can cause a lot of like pain and suffering that doesn't need to continue. Fee, who has a workshop coming up for any listeners who want an opportunity to come and see what we've been talking about in person, a candle making workshop. What is your process of making candles and where do you source your wax? Um, this year, I sourced our beeswax. It's our first year um, from a farm in Minnesota. I'd like to find somewhere a little bit closer, but this farm is called Gardener Bees and they have like this ethos of putting the bees first so it's really about like cultivating like pollinators which is super important and we also are going to be making some tea with herbs from Kiani's garden so our candle making process is a dip candle making process so you get the wax wet and then um, put the wick into the wax a certain number of times and you end up with the taper candle um, so it's like a pretty magical sort of creation process celebrating this time of year, which is like a collision of fire and ice, um, and sort of like trying to bring that fire energy into the middle of winter. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Laura and Kiani for joining us. Where can listeners find more information? Um, you can follow us on Instagram at at underscore farmstands. So that's F-E-H-U underscore farmstand. You can also email us at farmstand one word, at gmail.com. Thank you so much. Before we go, any last words to leave our listeners with? Thank you so much for having us. We're super excited to get this started. And let us know if you uh, want any specific herbs that, you know, you want grown locally. Fehu Farmstand is located in Malta, and that candle-making workshop is taking place on Friday, February 10th from 6 to 8 p.m. You can find the link to attend on Instagram or use that email. This is Sina Bazilahiki for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And that was uh, Laura Welsh and Kiani uh, Connolly-Wilson, who in our spare times, uh, part of the Troy City Council, and that was uh, Behum Farmstand. Thank you, Sina. And so next, we finish today's show with a Dear World segment. Lavender shares some responses from the public of what they want from the world. Hi, I'm Lavender, and this is the third episode in my Vox Pop series called Dear World. This series aims to make the world a better place by investigating how people wish to be treated and what they want from the world. I'm going to kick off this episode by answering these questions for myself. Then we will hear a submission from a recent grad student, followed by a sequence of live interviews of people at a Hudson Valley post office. So, what is something that you wish everyone would consider or do more? How do you wish people would treat you differently? What do you need from the world? These are the questions that I'm asking random people in my day-to-day, -day. and to start, I'm going to answer for myself. 
So, I wish people would approach all interactions with any living being, human or otherwise, with the same amount of respect and openness. And the saying of, don't judge a book by its cover, is cliche, but it's important. And I know it can be hard not to, not to judge a book by its cover, or not to judge a person by how they look, because, you know, we look to the cover to get an idea of what we're getting ourselves into. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that I wish people would try harder to go into situations with an open mind, and to recognize and acknowledge when they have preconceived notions and biases. And in the same vein, uh, people need to listen more. So often we get consumed by our own thoughts and points we want to make that we don't really give others the space to share theirs. And even when we do, we don't listen enough. So I wish people would really listen more to others, regardless of their age, gender, race, nationality, what they wear, how they walk, whatever. So that's my answer. Now we're going to hear responses from other people in the area. Your world. Something I wish people would consider more is to be kind and look out for your neighbors. I grew up on Long Island, New York, and in that, in growing up, I never really, you know, knew my neighbors, you know, there wasn't really a community I fit in with or even amongst the parents. It's kind of every man for himself. Since then, I've moved to several places across the country, including Montana, and the community here between what I would have thought to be complete strangers has been incredible and very empowering and very, gives me a lot of hope for humanity. So something I wish that people would consider more is look out for your neighbor, say hi, deliver cookies on Christmas morning. Little things, those little things make a huge impact, more than you would ever think. So I was just wondering, what is something that you wish more people would do more or consider more? Think. Think. Could you expand on that? Just, you, you, I, yeah, just use your brain. Think. Go through all possible outcomes and permutations. Okay. Um, and would you mind sharing some demographic information about yourself if you're comfortable? Sure. Such as um, sex, age, Oh, male, race. 44, white. Okay, great. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, what is something that you wish more people would consider or do more often? Be considerate of others. Could you expand on that? Holding the door for people, saying please and thank you. Basic, common politeness has been lost. Awesome. And um, could you share some demographic information about yourself if you're comfortable? Sure. White female, 43 years old, mom of four. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good luck. Thank you. So I was wondering, what do you wish more people would consider or do more often? Have respect for each other. Could you be more specific? What are we looking for? Nothing, just, you know, wondering if you could expand on that. Or is there a way that people treat you that you wish they would do differently? Well, that's what I'm saying. Would be respect for one another for the way they, the things they think and do and uh, whatever nationality they are. And just, we're all human beings and we all just have to show more love and affection one another. Great, thank you. And would you mind sharing some demographic information about yourself, such as race, age, sex, yeah. sex whatever? Yeah. Yeah, I'm okay. No? Okay. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you.
Um, so I was wondering, what do you wish uh, more people would consider or do more often? Be kind. Um, could you expand on that? Um, I just think um, simple little gestures are fine to show kindness to one another. Um, and is there a specific way people treat you that you wish they would do differently? Uh, no, not that's that I can specifically say right now. No. Sure. Um, and if you wouldn't, if you don't mind, could you share some demographic information about yourself, such as uh, race, sex, age, uh, sexuality, disabilities? I don't care to. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. So I was wondering, um, is there, what do you wish people would consider or do more often? Pray. 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 And why is that? Pray for America, help their country. There's just so much we can do for each other uh, if everybody got together and, you know, you know, we had a common goal, you know, patriotism, if everybody felt the same way about America, if everybody, I think, I think praying and supporting each other would be the best. Okay. And is there a way people treat you that you wish they would do differently? No, not, not really. I'm a, I'm a pretty blessed person. So, yeah. Um, okay. And um, would you mind sharing some demographic information about yourself, such as uh, age, gender, sexuality, disabilities, etc.? Sure, sure. Uh, I'm white, 53, Catholic, I live in the area, local, so. <laughs> right. Thank you so much. You're welcome, honey. Um, I was wondering, what do you wish people would consider or do more often? Just think of others before they speak or do an action that they might regret. Great. Um, is there a way that people treat you that you wish they would do differently? Just have more patience and be more understanding. And then lastly, if you don't mind sharing some demographic information about yourself, um, such as age, gender, race, sexuality, disability, status. I am a 32-year-old female. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And that was Lavender with her third episode of Dear World, and we'll be having more in the future. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. I'm Mark Dunley. Our engineer tonight was a rambunctious Kaylin McPherson. We want to thank all the volunteers who made this episode possible, uh, such as Lavender. We want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary. We're also on Instagram at Hudson Mohawk Mag. You send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. You can tune in 7 a.m., 9 a.m., 6 p.m. all weekdays. Hear local news to stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full stories, full episodes and individual stories are available on demand on our website and on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks, everyone. Until next time. Bye-bye.